Welcome to episode 27 of the G2 on 5G. It's the latest inside scoop on everything 5G. We cover six topics in about 15 minutes, and it's brought to you by More Insights and Strategy. I'm Will Townsend, and joining me again this week is my fellow partner in crime, Angela Sapp. So let me start with my first topic. There have been a number of announcements from Cisco related to um, service provider and 5G. Cisco's partner summit's been going on this week, and it was interesting, um, they shared a statistic that they've seen over a billion dollars in recent bookings and a 15% increase um, in revenue. Uh, and this is in their mass scale infrastructure group. And when you sort of look at over the last couple of weeks, some of the announcements, one was with AT&T around helping them manage IoT. And another was with Verizon and related to mobile edge computing. Cisco is really leaning into, um, you know, its enterprise capabilities to really sort of drive its service provider business. And I, I think it's quite impressive. You know, they, they have been a part of the Rakuten deployment, been sort of the poster child of, you know, using virtualization and agility to quickly roll out their LTE network and as well as their 5G network. So um, I continue to, to be impressed, you know, with Cisco and, and their push into service provider uh, it's no secret that they're a, a leader in optical as well, uh, you know, supporting those transport networks. And and so, again, you know, it, it, it's quite impressive. And I'm, I don't know, Angela, if you follow Cisco very closely in, in this part of the world, but uh, any thoughts? I think it's a little too deep into your world in terms <laughs> of coverage. But, I mean, the truth is, is that, like, you know, partnering with companies like AT&T and Verizon for IoT and Mac computing is super important and you know Cisco can't miss you know all the networking opportunities that are coming with 5G and the new devices and services that are going to utilize their networking or someone's networking so it's really good to see that they're they're not only taking this seriously but also gaining traction yeah you know and you know they they supported LTE and a lot of their router devices as sort of a failover you know for for Wi-Fi um, I was in a session at Partner Summit just today. Scott Harrell is an executive that leads a lot of the roadmap development there and asked him straight up, you know, hey, you know, is, you know, is this something that, you know, Cisco is really going to focus on private, you know, cellular networking? And he said they're still evaluating things. He did mention that they're going to support their customers, you know, based on their needs. Uh, Wi-Fi 6, you know, there are great improvements in device support, power management, and, and, and latency and all of that good stuff. You know, this private networking um, sector is an area that I cover. Uh, Nokia is quite heavily focused there. You know, Nokia's route to market, obviously, a service provider. And it just seems natural to me that Cisco would want to lean into private networking because they have you know, arguably, you know, the largest enterprise install base on the planet. It'll be. I also think, I also think the way private networking is, I, I see it being deployed is going to be very enterprise Wi-Fi like, mm-hmm. and that's right within Cisco's wheelhouse. So it feels yeah. like it should be a right fit. Um, but I think we'll see, you know, how that develops. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Well, let's, let's shift to your first topic this week and uh, T-Mobile announced uh, mid-band rollout. Yeah, so as you know, we've been talking about T-Mobile 600 megahertz for quite some time now. And we've been talking about, you know, how they've been aggressively rolling out 2.5 gigahertz as well. T-Mobile has been claiming that they're rolling around, rolling out around 1,000 2.5 giga, gigahertz sites per month. Um, and on Wednesday, uh, they announced that they were lighting up another 200 cities and pounds. Mm-hmm. Uh, in addition to the 200 that they already have lit up, 
by the looks of it, most of these towns and cities are suburban areas surrounding the larger metropolitan areas that Sprint was already serving. So like, you know, they turned on some like suburbs like Overland, which is outside of Kansas City. They turned on some New Jersey, um, which is, you know, outside New York. And they turned on some Chicago. So it's like a lot of even Dallas, I think. Um, So a lot of them are kind of like adjacent cities to big former Sprint markets. Mm -hmm. Um, And the first initial 200 cities and towns were kind of already covered by Sprint, but have been now transitioned to T-Mobile. It's good to see that they're actually expanding the footprint now and that they're, you know, growing to a full count of 408 cities from their, from 210 before. So, you know, Mm -hmm. they're more than doubling. I'm not sure if they're really quoting, you know, how many more pops they're adding by doing this. Um, Those numbers were not quoted anywhere. Um, But I think, you know, pops is obviously going to be the most important number um, in terms of actually delivering 2.5 gigahertz in a way that changes the network experience and improves bandwidth for most users. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's interesting. You know, I, I read the release as well. And again, they reiterated that they have the, the biggest position in mid-band relative to their competitors out there. That's obviously based on the Sprint acquisition and the Spectrum assets that were acquired there. And it seems like they're, they're, they're taking full advantage of that, right? And, you know, mid-band is going to be that, that great balance of propagation, distance, and performance and really complements, you know, what they're doing, you know, in, in the low band and, you know, also in, in millimeter wave and some of those larger metro areas that you were speaking to. And it makes perfect sense when you sort of look at what they're doing with their mid-band rollout to do those adjacent suburbs to those major metro areas. Um, they're, they're blanketing the, the, the density of their subscriber base, basically. And the interesting thing a lot of people don't really think about is 2.5 gigahertz, Sprint has already spent a considerable amount of time, you know, optimizing for coverage and making it, you know, work with, you know, HPUE and stuff like that for 4G. Mm-hmm. But what's really interesting is Sprint did not have a 600 megahertz coverage layer that improved 2.5 gigahertz coverage because you know, your coverage is essentially dependent on your upload capabilities and 2.5 does not have the propagation that 600 does. But yeah. if you can aggregate 600 and 2.5 like T-Mobile has been showing, mm-hmm. then you can actually get better coverage on 2.5 because you can use 600 as your upload carrier and 2.5 as your down or do both of those down. So um, it's going to be really interesting to see what happens with 2.5 gigahertz coverage compared to 4G because T-Mobile is combining 600 with 2.5. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I agree. Well, let's move to my second topic this week. And, and actually, you and I were just briefed uh, in detail uh, just about an hour ago on this. But uh, Ericsson rolled out their cloud RAN portfolio. And <clears throat> I had some questions, you know, that were answered when we had that session with Ericsson earlier. Um, you know, I'm, I'm impressed because Ericsson is providing operators another path. You know, they're they were, you know, he was pretty adamant, the gentleman that we spoke with, that this isn't going to replace, you know, purpose-built infrastructure, but that it's going to be a complement. And it's fully, you know, integrated into their, their, their radio uh, portfolio. And um, it's going to, you know, it's, it's going to provide, you know, um, another avenue for operators that, you know, maybe are, you know, wanting to roll out, you know, discrete services or provide that you know, that extra uh, bandwidth and that extra capacity. 
to layer this into, you know, existing networks. And I, you know, that you know, they, they were talking to us today about specific, you know, vertical applications. And it struck me, you know, it kind of reminded me of, you know, sort of the whole, you know, scenario around private networking, but obviously this is a, a discrete public, you know, deployment. So what, what were your thoughts after the conversation we had today? I will be the first one to admit, I didn't quite understand initially where they were going with it because mm -hmm. Ericsson is such a big infrastructure provider for purpose-built infrastructure and RAN. Yeah. Um, but I'm starting to understand that there's definitely new verticals and new applications where a, you know, a rigid RAN doesn't make sense mm -hmm. because it just doesn't fit the service and usage models of what's trying to be done in those, in those parts of the network. Yeah. So like, you know, the Verizons, the AT&Ts and T-Mobiles very likely do not want to have purpose-built network in new stadiums or new buildings. Sure. And they're much more likely interested in having more edge compute and something that's got, you know, cloud native capabilities that fit what their, the services their customers are looking to deliver through their networks. Mm -hmm. And you know, I feel like having a cloud RAN that's very dynamic and capable of adjusting to, you know, what customer needs are will ultimately be the right approach. And I think, you know, having more than one flavor of RAN for, for Ericsson is probably a good thing because, you know, they are the leader in, in a lot of ways. And yeah. I think that they want to make sure that they don't lose on opportunities with customers because they don't offer a cloud RAN. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, I like the architecture approach as well. It's microservices. It's built from the ground up. It's web scale. It's containerized. And so it'll really, you know, it, it'll fit very nicely, you know, with, you know, people that are focused on CICD, you know, and DevOps and, you know, that sort of thing. And from an application perspective, you know, they touched on mixed reality, right? And that's an area that you cover for the firm. And um, the ability to be able to, you know, sort of fine tune that latency and that throughput. Um, I think is compelling. And the other, the other thing that kind of came to my mind during the conversation was, you know, um, Ericsson has not been bullish on open RAN. So I think, you know, cloud RAN is, is, is sort of where they're going to hang their hat. Um, certainly Samsung and Nokia have cast themselves in, you know, in, into the open RAN, you know, space. And not that Ericsson won't come around over time, potentially, with Open RAM, but I think this is this is a logical step for them, and it also helps um, preserve um, their profitability in, in RAM. And and I agree with you; they're they're likely the undisputed leader. They have been in in RAM, and so this just sort of extends their their capabilities there. So it'll be interesting to see how that uh, that plays out. But with that, let's move to your second topic, and um, you've got some news to share around uh, the DoD and a spectrum sharing announcement. Yeah, so news literally came out earlier today uh, that the Department of Defense is actually interested in engaging in some spectrum sharing of government spectrum that's currently dedicated 100% to the DOD mm -hmm. um, and sharing it with um, some commercial providers like AT&T and Verizon and T-Mobile to give them access to more spectrum to enable them to improve their mid-band coverage. Realistically, this is more of a mid-band discussion more than anything because um, AT&T and Verizon have a considerable amount of low-band um, but are struggling to acquire enough mid-band. And 
Um, you know, with T-Mobile's acquisition of Sprint, they have more than enough than they need. Right. Um, so this is really an AT&T and Verizon discussion. Um, but I think, you know, for AT&T and Verizon to be competitive with T-Mobile, they do need to increase their spectrum holdings and mid-band. And being able to share this spectrum with operators is going to be a beneficial thing for the DOD because, you know, these operators can, one, pay for these licenses to share spectrum, but two, can also provide services to the DOD through their, their partners like Northrop or whomever, um, and basically start to creating 5G services that improve the, the readiness of the military to react and to communicate with itself. Um, mm -hmm. Because you know a lot of military um, technologies in terms of communications are fairly old, um, but are also reliable. And you know, I think the military would absolutely like the idea of having a redundant network that they could fall back on if there were some kind mm -hmm. of issues. And you know, having more partners and more more diversity is interesting. But I also think that it potentially could you know um, create some opportunities for um, security vulnerabilities as well. Even mm -hmm. though I'm sure that you know DoD equipment you know, and commercial equipment probably have no cross-pollination, um, you know, there are still ways to, you know, leverage spectrum to crowd and create issues. So it, it'll be interesting to see how um, the DOD manages this and how they, you know, roll out this kind of spectrum sharing. Um, it's interesting because, you know, the DOD is investing hundreds of millions of dollars in rolling out 5G networks with partners like Verizon and AT&T. So it's going to be interesting to see how this applies with what they're working with on, you know, these operators um, and how these two different components of 5G work to improve commercial and military applications. Yeah. You know, I didn't, I didn't catch it. Um, so I don't, I'm not, you know, very knowledgeable of, around the announcement. I, I am some, brand yeah, new. Super yeah. Hot. Super hot. So um, but I'm surprised, you know, we've got CBRS on go and that's, that's repurposed naval military spectrum that goes through that, that, you know, that, you know, that, you know, sharing, you know, scenario that, you know, I'm, I'm curious why, you know, the DOD chose to, to do something sort of outside of CBRS, but I'll need to dig into that a little bit further and maybe we have a further dialogue on that. But let's move to my last topic this week. And it's around the 5G fund for rural America. So this is uh, the FCC. Um, the budget that's been earmarked is $9 billion. So we've talked about this before. There's been lots of discussions um, around, you know, dedicating funds to, to rural America to rip and replace Huawei gear. Um, I think that number was, it was a billion when it was first kind of, you know, thrown out there. I think you and I sort of laughed at that. We scoffed at that because we know what what the investments are, you know, in deploying cellular infrastructure. It's in the it's in the tens of billions of dollars. So this gets a little bit, you know, closer to um, a realistic, you know, amount of money that's going to be required. But I'm wondering, you know, where where is all that going to be spent? Is it going to be solely just focused on, you know, ripping and replacing existing infrastructure that's already serving? rural America? Is it to expand, you know, areas that are underserved or is it both? I, I would assume both, but nine billion still seems like a small number to me. What, what do you think? Well, I think 
I do think it's not enough money. Um, it probably needs, here's the problem. Um, you know, we as a country have spent, I think now hundreds of billions of dollars to have this, have a nationwide uh, fiber network that we do not have. So mm -hmm. fundamentally, you know, giving too much money to the government to roll out a program like this is problematic because we may never actually see the benefits of it. Yeah. That said, too little money also does not solve the problem. So there has right. to be a happy medium. Um, and the, the problem is, is that I think rural connectivity is inherently an economically unsolvable problem. It's challenging. Yeah, it's subscribers, right? Yeah. yeah, there's no, there's no, the, the economic benefits <clears throat> of making the investments that just, it takes the, the time to return on investment is decades. Mm -hmm. And no operators will make those investments because it just doesn't work for their, their, their investors. Mm -hmm. So I think there definitely has to be a government solution to this problem that taxpayers um, will pay for. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's fine to tax. I think we should tax cities to um, pay for rural, right? It's just, you know, the, the operators, they get an absolute massive amount of, you know, profit coming out of the cities because that's where they get all of their density and all of their scale. Mm -hmm. um, they just, and then they kind of just ignore the, the rural areas and then the government picks up the bill. So I think that ultimately um, this has to be a partnership between the government and operators um, and choosing the right strategy to resolve the, the coverage gaps and performance gaps and experience gaps that people have in rural areas um, but I think it really should be focused on maximizing every dollar yeah. and improving um, coverage to and, and performance to a point where, you know, people are not being left behind. And I yeah, think that's yeah. ultimately an important thing to consider. Um, I personally visited a couple friends in a rural area recently um, and, you know, shocker, they didn't know that T-Mobile was rolling out 600 megahertz in their area and suddenly it was double the speed of what Verizon was offering in that same city. So mm -hmm. it's, it's doable. Um, um, admittedly, it was a town of like 25,000 people, but that's still relatively small and considered rural at this point. And, uh, you know, I think there is, there are avenues to making this possible, but I have a feeling that it's mostly going to exist in the low and mid band and millimeter wave is pretty much a non non starter, except for enabling for, you know, infrastructure, which we've been discussing in previous podcasts. Yeah, yeah, it's, you know, it's interesting. I, I think, yeah, there's going to need to be some sort of subsidy. Um, it probably will come in the form of, you know, some sort of, you know, surcharge or some sort of, you know, you know, tax to your point. But I also think there are companies that are, that could, that stand to benefit tremendously from building out connectivity in rural America. Um, with respect to the application of, of ag tech, you know, John Deere, you know, they, they build those huge combines and tractors and, and all of that. I mean, you know, I, I think, I think it, it can be a hybrid model where, you know, there has to be some, some subsidy there, but getting, getting these large, you know, agricultural, you know, companies involved um, and then getting creative around, you know, like how to, how to go figure that all out and how to, you know, you know, raise that additional, you know, you know, funding and because, you know, the benefit in ag tech is going to improve crop yields, it's going to improve uh, ranching operations, it's going to improve 
hatcheries and you name it, right? Market. So, it's yeah, gonna, so, you know, crop spoiling, you know, all these, all these, I mean, think about how much loss we have to just a crop spoilage. So it's like, right. there's huge components to, you know, just having data in real time. Um, I also think a satellite is going to be a big component of this as well. Um, yeah, you know, I agree. The Starlink is a big component of that. Um, there's going to be other services. I think marrying 5G with, with satellites can be a big component of improving rural coverage. Yeah, I've, I've been looking at that and I think, um, yeah, it'll be the low orbit. And, uh, you know, right now the latency is, is still, a, still a challenge there. But uh, I, I agree. I think that technology is going to improve over time. You've got, you know, you mentioned Starlink, you've got SpaceX, you know, you had OneWeb, now Hughes bought yes. OneWeb. Yeah, they're trying to, they're trying to revive that. So um, it may take a few years, but I think definitely satellite is going to become a big factor there. So well, let's move to your, your last topic. And you want to talk about the NBA and their potential deployment of 5G. Yeah, so as you all know, NBA season just ended. Uh, Lakers won, woohoo. But um, the reality is, is that <laughs> – sorry, I'm a Lakers fan. I don't have anybody in San Diego. Um, but the thing is, is that, you know, most of the season was spent um, in the bubble, right? So yeah. what ended up happening is that um, nobody got to see the games at all and everything was, you know, remotely um, operated and remotely um, watched. And now, you know – CNBC kind of wrote up an article uh, talking to the NBA and how they've been partnering with companies like Facebook to deliver VR experiences that are courtside um, using 5G uh, to enable, you know, high quality courtside experiences uh, for people who can't be there. And this is something that they've honestly been working on for years. They had a partnership with NextVR. Now NextVR is part of Apple. So that's not happening anymore. They kind of just, I mean, NextVR kind of shut down on its own, but mm-hmm. you know, Apple acquired them. So that's not happening anymore. But basically, you know, Facebook is, has a new VR headset that's, that's out now and it's very good. It's very high resolution, but there needs to be more content for it. So Facebook yeah. has been working with MBA to do, you know, deliver these sideline rail cams that basically follow the players as they go down court. And since there's no spectators, there's no issues with, you know, having to utilize the best seats in the house. The season doesn't start till January. So there's still some time to figure out how they're going to do this and, you know, how they're going to deploy this. Um, but 5G is going to be a big component of enabling that. And since nobody really knows you know, what the future holds in January. Mm-hmm. I have a feeling that they'll most likely probably start the season in a bubble, especially as a lot of COVID-19 cases start to rise now. I don't see that, you know, things will probably get any time better anytime soon. So uh, most likely they're going to start again in a bubble and they're going to want people to watch, you know, regardless. And the best way to watch will most likely be in VR. So mm. it's going to be very interesting to see how that works out. There are going to be a lot of people with these headsets and it might actually be the killer app for this headset because people love watching live sports. It's a great escape from, you know, everything that's going on around us. I personally have enjoyed watching the MLB season uh, as well as, uh, you know, uh, NBA season. So I, I think it's going to be a, an interesting application. And I think if, if the partnership goes smoothly, it'll only continue to expand. Yeah. And I think, um, yeah, that should expand into other, you know, major sports as well. Um, yeah. So it's exciting stuff. Well, Another great podcast this week. Um, take us home, Angel. Absolutely. 
We hope our viewers and listeners found this week's topics interesting. If anyone out there would like to provide us with insight on a specific 5G topic for a future podcast, please reach, reach out to us on social media. Will is at Willtown Tech, and I'm at Amshel Sog. We hope you guys have a great weekend, and please tune in again next time.